Okay, here we go again with Curiously Polar episode 45. And as promised, we are going to do this more regular from now. And as uh, you heard on the last episode, Henry is with us again this episode. Good morning. A wonderful good morning. Yeah. We have a whole bunch of interesting topics lined up. And one thing that we kept discussing while uh, being together on the ship in northern Norway in the Arctic was uh, just a general topic about uh, tourism in the polar regions because there is tourism and we are part of that with what we do. So uh, having that said, uh, what is the impact of tourism? Or how, how do we kick this topic off? <laughs> well, f first of all, it's, um, it's always a very difficult topic to talk about, especially when you work in that industry yourself. Um, I'm always torn between um, protecting environments and raising awareness, but uh, on the other hand, paying my bills off uh, that job. So, of course, um, we always come to that question, what kind of impact does the job we uh, execute actually have on um, on environment? And a lot of guests actually are coming to us and asking themselves, like, um, what kind of impact do I actually have when I travel here? And this is a very interesting question, and it's a very um, big question. It's a, it's a big topic to cover. And uh, when we want to talk about polar regions, we should distinguish between Antarctic and, and the Arctic because we have different um, developments in both regions. We see uh, same patterns, but we have also different impacts because when we have a look at Antarctica, which is like the, the least visited continent uh, in the whole world, um, we see that the majority of tourism operates around the Antarctic Peninsula, which is a rather small piece of Antarctica itself. So the impact there is very locally. It's very focused on on one um, little region. And it's also uh, very limited to a time period, which is like the Austral summer from November to March. So we have the majority of, of people coming there and when we talk about majority of people we are speaking about less than 60,000 people for this um, now finished uh, summer season and 60,000 people for a big continent of that size that's not a big number it turns a little different uh, when you see the amount of ships which carry those 60,000 people which is approximately 50 51 52 ships from a uh, little, little more than 40 operators, then you start thinking about what kind of impact does it have if we operate with more than 50 ships in that area in such a condensed time period. So just just uh, to, to get a bit of a comparison here, when we look at Antarctica, what does Antarctica compare to in size when we try to compare this to other places on the planet because because oh, the maps i mean the maps with their projections it's always difficult to gauge the size of a place just by looking at a map especially the one that is the furthest down south um it has an area of 14 uh, 14 million square kilometers okay i 
don't really have a comparison right now. Um, 14 million square kilometers, uh, 50,000 people roughly per season. Yeah, and it's all locally. Um, it's The majority, as I said, is just very focused on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the little tail of Antarctica, basically, which is leading towards uh, Thousand America. So the... Um, the majority of those um, visitors are departing from Ushuaia and Argentina, and um, this and is it's, the, pretty, it's pretty much straight straight south from there. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And um, if you take, for example, the um, the area of Germany, we are talking about three hundred sixty thousand square kilometers in, mm. in Germany. So fourteen million compared to three hundred sixty thousand. That gives you a little idea about um, how much. So it um, is big. Um, it is big and it's huge. It's huge, and the amount of people is, uh, I'd say, a mid-sized city in Germany, roughly. It's rather small size, sixty thousand. Well, dep depends. Depends on yeah. But I'm not I'm definitely not talking about the major cities, but it definitely uh, is less than than Reykjavik, in Iceland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So okay. So those, that's that that adds a bit of perspective. Um, what what kind of impact are we actually talking about when we talk about tourism in the in the polar regions well we have different types of impact and one impact definitely is uh, if we're traveling by ship and the the vast majority is uh, doing that then we think about the emission the pollution we we are um entering into the atmosphere in close proximity of uh those big ice ice fields and uh, we we are facing very very difficult um, environmental issues right now so the it's not only the sea ice which is melting down it's uh, the the shelf ice actually is breaking off and the closer we are getting uh, the more people we are carrying down there um, it definitely will have an impact how, how large this impact in fact actually will be in the end that's questionable, and I haven't found any uh, any study that um, would answer that question. But uh, in fact, when we go with like 50 ships down there and constantly sailing down, um, if we have 60,000 people on 50 ships, we're talking about 350-plus journeys um, on those ships. So it's, it is an, uh, an environmental impact which wouldn't be there without us. So that's definitely something we have to consider when we go down there. It wouldn't be there if we wouldn't decide to go down there. Yeah, um, of course. So uh, let's look at a bit of a grander, a, big, a bigger picture. Um, and one impact, of course, is also the getting there, right? You have to uh, get on a plane, you have to fly somewhere. So um, that is definitely an additional impact. Uh, do you know how the impact of the, um, the, the, the the emissions from a ship compared to the emissions from like airplanes? I'm just looking up. I, I, I do compensate when I travel, so I'm just looking um, up. Uh, no, I'm not how, sure about the How much comparison. that would be. Frankfurt Airport... To what's the airport to get me down south as Ushuaia. far as I get? Ushuaia. Okay, so that would be one flight. Uh, says about five tons of CO two, and 
a 12 day journey on a ship is uh, about three and a half thousand co2 tons um so the the flight there is in fact probably i don't know those journeys tend to be a bit longer right we're not talking about a seven day journey to get from ushuaia down to uh well they range between uh seven and 14 days okay so um i guess we can we can say that it's it's a comparable um a comparable amount of emissions that that you're getting there for the flight and the actual ship's journey um there are ways to compensate we'll, we'll talk about this later so there are ways to to at least take something off but do you have an idea how the local impact by the ships being there by people being there um how that compares to the impact that i don't know the rest of the world has on these areas what do you mean with impact of the rest of the world well i i know and we, we've talked here on the show about this with mario before uh how this whole distribution of uh of emissions works around the planet there are streams there are like mm -hmm. uh d different conveyor belts so to speak that move um water around that move air around the world and uh that is one question um how how this compares from an impact point of view um this is also um different from arctic to antarctica antarctica has like the antarctic ocean uh which is surrounding um the whole of antarctica and it's basically isolating the um antarctic from the rest of the ocean current that's not entirely true because you still have the connection and you still have um, injections of warmer water into the Antarctic Ocean, colder water from the Antarctic Ocean to the world's oceans. Mm -hmm. But still, the Antarctic Ocean is circulating around it, so it's kind of isolating it. So we have a different impact there, while in the Arctic, we actually have the intrusions from Barents Sea, from Bering, uh, Bering Sea, and so on. We have um, the intrusions in, from warmer oceans from the Atlantic into the um, Arctic Ocean because it's basically an open ocean there. And uh, we don't have a landmass where water is circulating around. It's basically a deep basin up in the north. So this is a different geological um, picture, and by that also a different um, picture of the ocean currents and our impact on that. So if we um, have a warmer climate and warmer currents in the major oceans like Atlantic and Pacific, that will definitely have a much quicker impact on the Arctic than on the Antarctic because the Antarctic is better isolated. Okay, so the Antarctic is mostly... Does that mean the Antarctic is mostly um, impacted by what is happening locally, whereas the Arctic is uh, more impacted by what's happening outside of the Arctic? So can we say it that way? Not, necessi not necessarily. Um, okay. It means that the Arctic is much more fragile to um, the um, impacts, to those impacts we have. Um, while the Antarctic is a much better uh, forecast possibility. So if we see um, the sea ice not being able to... Uh, to, to stay for over a year or two years and getting thicker, um, then we see that there has been already a change in water temperature around the Antarctic, which means if we have um, such a big change in the Antarctic Ocean that we 
have a much, much bigger impact already in the Arctic. So just for comparison, the Arctic has heaten up about uh, one, one and a half times uh, faster than the rest of the world, while the Arctic is between two and four times faster than the rest of the world. So, so, so we say, say that again. What, what exactly do you mean by that? I mean that the um, both the water temperatures as the air temperatures um, in the um, Antarctic has heated up one and a half times faster okay. than the rest of the world. And in the Arctic, we have um, rising temperatures to two to four times faster than the rest of the world. So we have a much, much quicker acceleration in the in the Arctic since it's not so isolated. In the Antarctic, we still have this huge fridge, this huge freezer, this huge ice mass on the continent, which still is um, releasing a lot of, uh, of cold air, a lot of uh, cold water. But in the Antarctic, uh, if we see those effects in the Antarctic, the um, warning signs should be much, much bigger because it is so well isolated. All right. So, uh, do you have a comparison of the amount of ice between the Antarctic and the Arctic? I I, I know the Ant Antarctic is way way bigger, but do you know about how they relate? Um, in Antarctica, oh Lord, um, how much ice are we talking about? It's um, sorry well, for putting it, you on the spot here. <laughs> the, the the 14 million square kilometers are fully covered by by ice, so um, that and they're and they're covered uh, several miles deep in places. Yeah, up to two, uh, three miles. Mm -hmm. um, the the major difference we have here is the Antarctic is a continent, so we have a landmass underneath, so we have glacial ice there, um, while in the Arctic we have an open ocean. We're covered with sea ice around the North Pole and landmasses surrounding that ocean. So we don't have um, that much of the isolation in, in the Antarctic. The bedrock of the Antarctic is, uh, is a little bit working like the bedrock in Greenland as an isolator for uh, insulator for, for the ice. So it's, it's cooling the ice. It's helping to maintain it, even though the, uh, the climate around it will be um, facing increasing temperatures. So it needs a lot more temperatures to cool down, uh, to, um, to warm up the, the insulated ice mass uh, on both places, Greenland and Antarctica. So if we uh, compare Antarctica straight to, um, to the Arctic, the majority of the, of the ice in Antarctica is land-based, while it's in the Arctic is sea-based. Okay, so... Uh let me see where we can go from here. Um, impact. We've been talking about impact in terms of emissions. Um, there's also other impacts like impact on the wildlife, but just by being there, for example. Exactly. And uh, then there are organizations that help or try to help kind of keep that in check. So uh, could you tell me a bit more about those? Well, we have two major organizations, uh, which is IERO for the Antarctic and AECO for the Arctic. And those um, 
organization associations, they are combining the tour operators operating in those areas um, when it comes to tourism. And they are providing guidelines. They're trying to set a framework for protecting um, not only the wildlife, but also the whole environment, the whole areas. And um, surprisingly, all the operators are following those rules. So this is nothing that's uh, given if you see the difficulties of negotiating treaties on how to um, yeah, how to maintain or develop certain areas. Um, just if you have in mind um, the negotiation about uh, turning the Weddell Sea into a marine protected area, which uh, didn't work out in the end uh, earlier this year. But um, we have... Uh, those two associations and they're doing a very great job and uh, they are also collecting numbers and helping giving tools um, for people like me like tour guides like expedition guides um, the cruise companies um, the crews of the ships and so on so um, they're doing a good job here and um, I'm just on the homepage of AECO the Association of Arctic Expedition Cruise Operators um, is their name and they they have they have guidelines and i have been on ships where this was like really enforced so there was uh there was pretty much information about that on the ships and you were just not supposed to do certain things and there are guidelines for visitors there are uh information about how to keep the sea clean there are gu guidelines about how to deal with wildlife there's uh, environmental protection guidelines uh they call them biosecurity guidelines um, there are mandatory guidelines for two operators um, mm -hmm. when it comes to their operations um, and so on. So, um, yeah, I've seen this in, in action. And this this went down to things like uh, you're not supposed to fly drones around wildlife, for example. Exactly. In some, yes. in some places like, like AECO, uh, I think, forbids you. If you're a tour operator, you cannot let your guests fly drones up there at all because that has an impact on wildlife. And wildlife is um, is fragile up there because it's pretty much a daily a daily survival fight that these animals I completely have up there. I agree. And I actually personally think we don't naturally have the right to walk in those uh, wildlife colonies like penguin colonies in Antarctica or walruses in uh, the Arctic or whatever. Um, even if we have these very good policies in place and we're not touching the animals or we're not bringing diseases or cleaning our gear we're bringing with us, we still have an impact and we're disturbing them in a way. We're disturbing the natural behavior. And Aiko and Ayato, they are doing a very good job of um, building those main um, framework, but how we execute it, that's up to each two operator and uh, each guide in the end. And for me personally, I think um, we shouldn't be there in the first place to disturb those animals. We should be in um, in some distance to observe them, but we shouldn't just walk through their colonies. That's definitely something that, uh, for me personally, goes uh, way too far. Yeah, and I'm completely with you there. Um so let's look at another kind of impact and that uh, I would call this the reverse impact, the impact that these areas have on the people who go there. That's a very important thing because um, when we talk about our footprint in those regions, then we also have to put it into perspective, into um, into 
yeah, into scale. So when we have um, those yeah, very little amount of people uh, traveling in those areas, and uh, for Antarctica, we're talking about uh, those roughly 60,000 people, then those 60,000 people, they see a fragile environment um, which turns a very... Um, a very difficult to understand topic like um, yeah, climate change, uh, global warming, into a perspective. They can see it, they can feel it, they can touch it. And this raises an awareness for them and uh, puts them into a place where they, when they come home and return to their friends and their natural environments, um, where they're are more sensitive to what they still what they're doing on their own, how they are acting and their daily life, and they work as a, a multiplicator for um, those sensitive topics. In the best case, the worst case is they're traveling there for the bucket list. They're just um, checking up a box, and they're coming home and say, "Yeah, okay, I've seen that next uh, next destination." Um, the majority of people traveling there, they are traveling there for a reason. Um, and they got sensibilized in a in a way, and they return home um, as changed persons. And for me personally, I think that the tourists coming with us on those polar re- regions they gain a deep insight about what matters um, through our con- uh, through our lectures we have, through our uh, constant. Um, educative surrounding. We have a very educative approach on all our trips there. And through that, a comprehensive understanding of our um, uh, of our environment can be generated. And I, on- uh, I believe that only um, what we know, only what we know and understand well, will be very likely protected by us. The, the uh, educational aspect, uh, I th- something, something I want to emphasize here, because um, what we especially on the last tour in northern Norway that we did together, uh, what we did there was um, we pretty much had daily lectures, one or two lectures yeah. a day. And of course, some of that was about photography and how about uh, how and about how to shoot the aurora and how to deal with uh, the wildlife and so on. But then um, there was also a whole bunch of very, very deep and interesting talks that you held there and things that you showed regarding exactly the impact um uh, on what what's what's happening to the glaciers how this happens to raise the awareness and to make sure that people who are on these tours uh, end up understanding much better and uh, it, it pretty much the feedback that i hear uh, relatively often is that people that that turns people into uh, into advocates into uh, exactly multipliers They're almost yeah. ambassadors for 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 those yeah. kind of topics yeah so I think that's a very important part of of our job, and the people who are coming with us on those journeys, they are generally very op- open already. So they are very seeking those information, and um, they are very um, very open to educative uh, input. But I don't want to make it too much um, uh, school like. I don't want to have a school lecture. Um, I, I want to show them the beauty of nature and put that into perspective in how that has changed and why does it change and what is my personal impact and how can I actually um, change that? How can I affect um, the change and how can I help in maintaining this beauty for others? Right. Uh, so as a as a last note here and we i touched on it earlier but i want to bring it up again is the um the act of <clears throat> uh, compensating the act of 
trying to offset what you do there it, with other means, with other measures. And um, uh, I think we, we agree that the local impact, the impact on on the environment by your act of traveling um, is there. And the best to avoid it would be to not travel. But the second best thing is to uh, to join a compensation program and to compensate that um, there are plenty of those out there. One that I personally use to compensate like my flight uh, miles and my travel miles and my, my personal driving miles um, is, a, is a company called Atmosphere. Uh, they're located here in Germany, but they are, um, they, they are in English as well. So um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And what they do is um, you, you have pretty much have a calculator where you enter what you are doing in terms of travel and they uh, tell you how much you have to compensate um, to and that's the interesting thing not just like offset it in some way but um, they support with your money um, they support projects in for example third world countries that have the goal of reducing emissions of um, of uh, reducing emissions for a long time so there are projects they support about energy efficiency uh, wind energy projects there are hydropower projects there are uh, biogas and biomass projects there are solar energy projects uh, there are projects around environmental education in again uh, predominantly third world countries and you you end up the the money that you spend on that to compensate is uh, is I think really well spent. Uh, first of all, it is money that you cannot spend any other way, right? If it's spent, it's spent. So uh, you are, um, yeah, you are pretty much taking the ability to spend that on other polluting things away from yourself, <laughs> which is, I think, a fair point here. And the second thing is, um, these projects will have an impact on the environment in another place and in a very positive way. And it is as i said the second best thing that can be done i recommend to my to my uh to my clients i recommend to do that um and again i compensate stuff and i think everyone should do this everyone who travels should do this not just for a better feeling but um because it does have an impact and it is it is the second best thing that you can do it definitely is yes the recommendation all right i think we'll leave it at that um i, I think uh we have at least hopefully raised a bit of awareness here and uh, I hope we have given everyone who listens uh, an idea of what we're dealing with and how we are trying to uh, make sure that what we do has the least possible impact and has the, uh, the, the best possible result for everyone who travels with us. All right, we'll be back in a week with another topic um do, do we have a little sneak preview of what you want to talk about um i think next week will be about um the history of arctic expeditions oh it sounds cool okay so until next week everyone stay tuned for more episodes of curiously polar until then take care and bye bye